And now, coming to you live through a haze of jet lag, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. Jet lag, uh, jet lag from World Fantasy. Is that what that is, Jonathan? Well, I mean, don't forget, I've been only been home for a week, Gary. And it took you a week to get home. Well, yeah. I mean, look. Let's be honest. I, I did stop and I did party along the way. I have to confess. You know, so there's no doubt that all in all, I probably did myself some damage. It might very well. We we had a good time there. I mean, I uh, it's one of those conventions. One of the worst things, the thing I most hate about conventions has nothing to do with the convention. Is when when my plane is at five o'clock in the afternoon and everybody else is gone by noon, and you're stuck in a hotel which is full of, you know, in this case reading specialists. But then I kept comforting myself with the thought that even though my plane is leaving six hours later than everybody else's, I'm still going to be home before they are. <laughs> That's true. And you know, look, it was in many ways a really good weekend. We recorded a group of, I think, very good podcasts. Uh, that will come to that one of which has already been released, and others which will come to you in coming weeks. Particularly, Gary, if I can successfully uh, filter out the building air conditioning system from one or two of them. Well, that's true. That was an awkward thing. Uh, I know. This for people who don't know what we're talking about. It was an old hotel which was retrofitted with enormous individual room air conditioners. No, no, uh, that was turned off. That, that was turned off. It was the ones outside, down in the atrium. Oh, the ones outside. Oh, okay. I actually turned off the ones in the room every time before we started recording. So they were actually outside the room, and you can still hear them right through half the podcasts. I'm thinking of... My, my feeling, and, and I've, I've heard this from our listeners, although not always in the politest of terms, is that if people can't understand the words being said on this podcast, that's about as good as we get. Yeah, well, we, we may fix that one day. Uh, but we talked to um, we talked to Mr. Clute and Mr. and, and Gene Wolf mm-hmm. about a borrowed man. We talked to Steve Erickson and Glenn Cook about their work. We talked to Charlie Anders and Quinn Yarbrough about fantasy, both old and new, and their various careers. Uh, and we talked to oh, a couple other people. We also recorded a panel, which hopefully we will have up. Gary and I, you know, we, we discussed the fantasy can- canon, which should have been sub- subtitled The World's Smallest Bar Fight. Um, and, and we that- had uh, Elizabeth Barron and Scott Lynch. We did indeed. So those will come out over the, co- over the coming, well, for me, summer and new winter break, well, after we wind up the, uh, the podcast for the year. You're looking over your shoulder, Gary. Readers, you can't see this. Gary's sitting there with a glass of wine, looking over the shoulder. I'm thinking, it's like he's checking the clock to make sure if you can finish now and go on summer break no, or winter not, break right away. The clock I was checking. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned it's the beginning of your summer, and as of this evening, a few days before Thanksgiving, we are supposed to get our first snowstorm of the season. That sounds heavenly. And so I may have a, a few inches of snow on the ground by morning. So we went out. We, we, we podcasted for you listeners. We attended World Fantasy. I went to a, at least one of my own panels, which went fairly well, um, mm-hmm. as well as it was going to go. Um, the convention was a bit of a shambles, but not terribly so. Um, I gathered the you know I, I gathered the, 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 the dealers' room sales were disappointing, and um, people were disappointed in, in lack of a souvenir book, which may or may not still be coming in the mail. I don't think anybody mm. really knows the answer to that. 
Um, but by and large, the, the the venue was very nice. Saratoga Springs was very nice. And by and large, it's the same group of people that you want to talk to. There were any number of uh, bar conversations, even though the bar was very tiny, and informal conversations that that could have been a great podcast had we had a recorder right there at the time. And, of course, the actual bar itself, was, you can never record in successfully anyway because oh, of the ambient noise. noise. Yeah. But nonetheless, that was enjoyable. It was fun. We met people. We did those things. Probably the big announcement of the convention, Gary, was the announcement that the World Fantasy Board will be moving away from the current four statuette for the World Fantasy Award itself. Um, yes. For reasons widely discussed in the community. And I, you know, f- f- just personally, I'm actually quite pleased to see that they're taking a, a forward looking approach to it, even though I've got affection for the old statuette. So we, I would be very interested to see what what they come up with. I think, um, well, it's, it's almost everybody I've talked to agrees they're going to come up with something vaguely <laughs> abstract, vaguely, whatever. Sorry, um, I shouldn't laugh right into the microphone like that, but my first thought was they're going to come up with something, and you're going, well, yeah, I guess that's fair enough. They probably will. Well, I mean, but the, you know, the nebula is a rather lovely abstract piece of lucite with 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 uh, fake solar systems inside it and so forth. One of my favorite awards, uh, which is a horror award, is I think it's the, the uh, World Horror Award, which is the little house, the, the little door that opens. Stoker yeah. Award. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's very suggestive. It's very kind of creepy looking. I have no idea who designed it, but it's not. Um, it's not named after anybody. Well, I guess the Stoker Award is named yeah. after Stoker. Well, I mean, there's, there's so a, several people. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. As, as several people pointed out during these discussions, the World Fantasy Award is not called the Lovecraft in the way that the Edgars or Hugos or Stokers are called. It's simply called the World Fantasy Award, and therefore anything could symbolize it. Well, that is true. I've certainly heard all sorts of apocryphal stories about the origins of the current form of the statuette for the World Fantasy Awards. Not the least that apparently when one person tried to tell me that it's not just simply a caricature of H.P. Lovecraft, but it's supposed to be a combined weird kind of uh, uh, caricature of Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Something... Oh, I did not know that. I'd no, I don't... I don't I, I, Lovecraft and Easter Island. Uh, well, that's just because it looks like an Easter Island head, I think. Well, but, yes. <laughs> but... I think, I'm not sure if that's really true. I can't quite see it myself, but, and I've heard it referred to as the Howie, but I mean, it's the Royal Fantasy Award. And, yeah, my, I mean, to me, the interesting thing is, when I think World Fantasy Award, I think fantasy, not weird fiction first. I think, fa- you know, like mainstream fantasy, not horror first. But, of course, the original the you know, original convention itself was very much a Lovecraftian focused, weird fiction focused convention. That's where it came out of. So I don't know if they're going to move some, something to something much more, you know, mainstream fantasy. I certainly, you know, sort of hope they don't just sort of buy a job lot, lot of rejects from the, the Franklin Mint and go ahead with that. I don't think they're going to do something like that. There probably are plenty of artists who want to design things. <clears throat> I think where the controversy will arise is if they decide to do, I don't know, a dragon or an elf or something which is clearly fantasy and not horror. Right now they have something which is horror and... If you tweak it a little bit, you can make an argument that Lovecraft influenced fantasy. But you can't really come up with an image of a person or an image of a single iconic thing that uh, that covers both aspects of the field. And I know a number of board members are determined that this maintain its 
identity as both a fantasy and horror award and not just a genre fantasy award. I have no quibbles with that. That's fair enough. Uh, I also understand they've made it clear that they will be going with a non-representational award. And I think that's appropriate. Ooh. And by that, I mean it won't be any person at all. It will be some kind of thing, object, concept. Um, I'll be interested if they actually even stick to a statuette. I mean, the, you know, the original proposal apparently back in the day wasn't for a statuette. It moved to that. Uh, and, of course, as we know, some other awards don't present statuettes. They present other things. Shirley Jackson's yeah. give you a rock. The tip trees give you some chocolate. I mean, you know, so it could be anything. Right. I mean, in some cases, they give you something. Well, one of my favorite awards, which we used to give out at the um, at the Locust Awards, was a, a, a signed banana. Uh, and yeah. for years, Charles would do that. I mean, you, you would have a banana, a ripe banana, signed by Ursula Le Guin and Nancy Cress and Connie Willis and maybe even Ted Chang, and then you wouldn't know what to do with it because it's going to turn black no matter what you do. It's going to go away. And a yeah. few years ago, they moved away from that wonderfully nihilistic idea of an award and started getting people to sign a plastic banana, which isn't the same thing at all. I think your award should decay. Right, so the future award should be what? Decay. It should, it should gradually rot. It should crumble. It should, it should turn into a ruin of some sort. No. No. You no. No, right. no, no, no. Well, it does get darker. One of the things I noticed... And I, um, uh, I think I commented on it to you at the time. The, the, this last batch of Howies that were given out were much brighter silver than the one I've got. They do darken over the years. Uh, uh, well, actually, no. The first, uh, I think they actually changed the patina on it. So the last three or four years' worth are quite... Uh, the post-2011 statuettes are quite shiny. Okay, maybe that's what the... Difference. Whereas the older ones are grayer and I think better looking personally... I mean, not just because I have one, Gary, you know. Uh, and I guess we should say that as well. I mean, in terms of various bits and bobs, you and I are actually both you know, fortunate enough to be recipients of the Royal Fantasy Award. Of the old one. Yeah, well, yes. they're not going to give you a new one. What do you want? <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, 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 this, this is a story which probably weren't anybody's feelings for a long time, but uh, the first award I got, I think, well... A long time ago for scholars, it was, it was the Pilgrim Award from the Science Fiction Research Association, which had no money at all. Yeah. And basically what you got was um, a, a, a certificate, and you could, you, know, you could see basically it's an HP printer certificate uh, that says you've won this award. And then after two, the next year I went to the um, awards, and I actually saw the Pilgrim Award, which is a wonderfully sort of... Uh, I don't know, uh, medieval cosmology thing. It looks wonderful. But they only had one of them. Yeah. You could only hold on to it for that year. It's sort of like the Stanley Cup. Yes, it was a, per a perpetual yeah. trophy, I think is what they're called. Yeah. Uh, don't don't you just this. You realize the ultimate, ultimate way they save money, so don't tell them this. We should take this out of the podcast, but we won't. And it is they create a beautiful statuette thing that everyone goes, I'm pining after that. Then they create, create the little pins, and the pins are your perpetual the thing you get to keep, and you only have the perpetual trophy for like 12 months, and you've got to take it back. That's it. The World Fantasy Cup. <laughs> it would be a big silver loving cup. Oh, that sounds bad, Gary. I know it does. And then if you, if you split the award, which has happened sometimes, that's awkward as well. But at any rate, we're not talking about the substance of the awards, which were... Uh, I thought... We've descended from rambling to blathering. I, 
we're, yeah, we're, we're blathering about. We're not, people say we talk too much about awards, and now we're actually talking about physically about awards and what they're made out of. And yeah. Who cares? Well, actually, okay. Unless, this is, unless this, you want one. This is what we can say. The 2015 award season is over at last. Yes. It Time is. to start preparing for the 2016 award season. This is so. Uh, well, I mean, well, you have to worry about that even now. Well, so do you. The I mean, recommended list. Well, well, in fact, well, I mean, I do. We, let me put it this way, Gary. We are starting, in fact, officially starting on Cood Street, the 2016 award season in December. Because we will run our year in review episode for the first time. We plan to do one of those. So that will, right. that will start to talk about what we think should go into the awards next year. Uh, our colleagues at Locus will put out their recommended re- re- reading issue in February. Uh, and I think the first right. awards stuff start comes again in March or April, doesn't it, Gary? Well, I guess the Nebulas will be in, back in Chicago again, I think, in no- April. Nominations are Crawford open. Award, the Crawford Award is going to be in the um, third week of March. So yeah, uh, so yeah, we need to get pe- people who are uh, judging awards need to start thinking about that sort of thing now, and people who want to nominate for it. One of the purposes of of our podcast, I suppose, when we get around to doing our best in the year, and certainly one of the purposes that Charles Brown had in mind for the Locus recommended reading list was to shove certain works, novels, novellas, related works, to the attention of a readership. Yeah, well, and that, that uh, just, which would then. That's part of the purpose of this program, without a doubt. Um, yeah. I did have an idea, though. I thought an awful lot of energy and heartache goes into a awards season throughout the year. It's a nonsense called a season. The, the awards year. It goes into the awards year. Um, mm-hmm. I th- I've just thought of another way we could save everybody a lot of heartache. <coughs> how, can, how, how can we do that? I think what we should do is we should have a podcast. You and me. we get some other people on if they want to come. And what we'll do is we'll draw winners for every award for next year out of a hat. And we'll just tell them now. We could do that, absolutely. You know, here's the Nebulas, the Hugos, the World Fantasies, the World Horrors, all of the 2016 awards sorted. We'll just mail the results off to the uh, people who are uh, doing it, and they can just send out statuettes and certificates and rocks and chocolates and all that. Which tells you something, I know what you mean by that, but it also tells you something about the nature of awards that are given out at weekends, and that is, the award is a symbol of the weekend. People would hate this because they want to go hang out with their friends. And let's, you have to admit this, getting an award in front of your friends is cooler than just getting an award. There is no doubt that that is true, Gary, absolutely 100%. I was, I was, I was very... an award in front of your enemies... <laughs> um, if you say so, Gary, I will take your word Absolutely. on that. I, I have I have no view on that whatsoever. Um, I, I guess there's one thing we should do very quickly, since we've blathered about awards. A quick set of uh, of congratulations to the 2015 or 16 World Fantasy Award winners. Yes. So, to Ray Russell and Rosalie Parker of Tartarus Press, who won the Special Award Non-Professional. To Sandra Kasturi and Brett Alexander Savory from Shizine Publications, who won Special Award Professional. To Samuel Araya, who won Best Artist. To Angela Slatter and Helen Marshall, whose collections The Bitterwood Bible and Other Recountings, and Gifts for the Others Who Come After. To Kelly Link and Gavin Grant for, frankly, the best anthology of the year, Monstrous Affections. Uh, 
to Scott Nikolai for Do You Like, look, like to Look at Monsters for short fiction, to f- friend of the podcast, friend of ours, Daryl Gregory for his novella We Are All Completely Fine, and for David Mitchell, who's a complete stranger to us for The Bone Clocks, sincerest of congratulations. From the podcast. Were you surprised about the... Were you surprised about David Mitchell? Yes, I was. I didn't think he would... I was, too. Uh, and, and honestly, the crowd was in the room. I mean, I have to tell you, you know, listeners, if you were there, the crowd went mild. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like... People are like, when uh, Sandra Kasturi won, she was very witty and very funny, um, and everybody went wild for that. That was like a big deal. Uh, when Monstrous Affections won, when Daryl Gregory won, and everyone's like, yay! David, David Mitchell's like... Well, it was you a know. murmur going through the room. It was it was a murmur of basically, oh, I guess I should have read that. I, I got to say, I really <laughs> thought it was going to be uh, Jeff Vandermeer or Catherine Addison. Um, I would have, I would have probably thought it would be Vandermeer. And I have to th- have to say, there were no dud novels on the list. You know, like I can't sit there and say like the Bone Clocks was a terrible choice. It should have been Area X. But if it had been Area X, I wouldn't have sat there going, gosh, Area X was a dud choice. It should have been The Goblin Emperor or My Real Children or <coughs> City of Stairs. They were all good choices. So I think, you know, sort of. Oh, I, I, th- I think the issue with David Mitchell, and it's come up before when there are nominees uh, who are not part of the tribe. That, it, And I have not read The Bone Clocks. I have a copy here, and I hope to. I think he's a very talented writer. He is somebody who clearly does not despise science fiction and fantasy. He does not try to alienate himself from it in any way um, although the acceptance speech which was read by I forgot whom um, a publisher of science fiction yeah. and fan- it was basically that he appreciates science fiction and fantasy and it has helped to shape his work which is a coy way of saying my work isn't really science fiction and fantasy but it involves science fiction and fantasy well, you know, let, let's not stretch is, that too much I mean, it, it was yeah, what it I'm was I'm not stretching it too much I, I, I think the main issue the main uh, lukewarm reception for his win. My point is that he was not somebody who was there. He was not somebody who I think anybody knew. Uh, it was not a popular genre writer. It was kind of a literary bestseller, mm-hmm. uh, which might very well have uh, uh, justified the view of the judges. Uh, to some extent, the judges are choosing when they do this. They're making a choice not to go to a, a crowd pleasing source. They're going to the novel that they think is most deserving yeah. as a novel. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it'll be very interesting to see what ends up winning, in fact, ends up on the ballot next year. You know, this will be one of our topics of conversation in the next week or so, when we record the next, you know, our first ever, in fact, real year review podcast, where we'll talk to people about stuff they think is awesome from, two th- well, terrific, high quality, uh, through mm-hmm. 2016, uh, 15. And, you know, I think there's been a real good selection of stuff, so it's going to be very interesting. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a strong year, although uh, it's interesting to look at uh, things like the World Fantasy Ballot where you are excluding science fiction, um, which is, by the way, it's an odd ballot in that now the Nebulas include fantasy and the Hugos include fantasy and um, presumably world horror could in- include both fantasy and science fiction. If I'm not mistaken, the World Fantasy Award is the only one of the major awards that specifically excludes an entire genre. Maybe yeah. Well, what about horror? And I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, I think originally the idea was, well, there was there was nothing like a Hugo for fantasy awards, so that was redressing a balance. 
Um, and the argument which I heard way back at the beginning was that science fiction has both the ego and the nebula, and fantasy doesn't have anything. Yeah. Now, fan now a fantasy writer can be in all of those categories. A fantasy writer can be in just about every category there is for an award in our field. True. Um, I've got to say that, that I was looking at what we should be campaigning for in 2016, given our runaway success in campaigning in 2015. Oh, yeah. Right. When, when we have, you know, deeply influenced the result of the awards. So I think I'm still campaigning for CJ Cherry for an SFWA Grandmaster. Mm-hmm. My campaign still amounts to saying on this podcast I'm campaigning for it rather than actually doing anything else. Uh, I would now say that I'm going to add Howard Waldrop for Lifetime Achievement at the World Fantasy Awards. Absolutely. Uh, he was looking very, very frail when I saw him at the ceremony. And I just thought, I know it's just, it could be a good time to give it a lot of serious thought. Um, what else am I going to campaign for? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's two things. Yeah, well, that's, that's interesting because when we get into the best of the year things, we're not going to be talking about recommendations for these awards like special award professional, special award non-professional. We probably won't get into the best related book category uh, for the Hugos because that seldom gets talked about. Um, we'll, pr- we'll probably cover novels and collections or something, and that's about it. We'll cover think. novels and collections and individual stories and novellas and so forth and so on. Um, I can't tell you that there is an interesting, to me, change, because, because dear, li- dear listeners, who's all, in fact, it's now my bet, 20 minutes into this podcast, everybody switched off, because they realize it's one of those episodes. It's one if, of those episodes. If you made it this far in, please email me at myfirstname.lastname at gmail.com, and I'll personally email you back a thanks. So, okay. uh, there you go. Or They're all going, wow, I can't wait for that. Um, yeah, I... I uh, Killed what I was going to say. Uh, well, we were talking about yeah. that are not for stories, but go ahead and let me out in your train of thought. I don't know. I mean, look, I, th- I think it's going to be interesting to see what people come up with. There's an awful lot of stuff to recommend. It's, it's actually been a good but strange year. Um, I find myself disagreeing with some of my short fiction colleagues, which is nice. You know, there's some people saying it's a weak year for science fiction with some great stories in amongst it, but a strong year for fantasy. But in fact, I think it's ultimately proven that the reverse is true. There's been a lot of uh, one-shot publications with some very strong work in it. We've seen some great novels from some both new and established writers. You know, I've seen some writers re- you know, reinventing themselves a bit. It's, it's been a good year. Well, as, as somebody who reads a lot more short fiction than I do, and I depend, I was talking, I was on a panel the week after. Uh, world Fantasy at Windicott here in Chicago and Rich Horton was, was there and I was thanking him and, and, and you and Gardner as well for doing the year and best because that's how I keep up with short fiction and when I discover a new writer it's likely to be in short fiction or it's likely to be some awards ballot and I don't remember when I for example came across Yoon Ha Lee um, who has turned out to be a very interesting writer you must do this all the time though when you're putting together a year's best anthology, or for that matter, when you're getting to the point of making invitations for a themed anthology, uh, first question is, uh, have you seen anybody this past year who you'd never discovered before that you think has got a career going? And I secondly, mm-hmm. go, answer that question first. Okay, I don't know that never seen before, but the two writers who stood out for me uh, uh-huh. as the best lesser-known writers are Kelly Robson and Sam, Sam Miller. 
Okay. Sam Miller wrote some terrific stories in Asimov's Clark's World and Lightspeed, science fiction uh-huh. and fantasy. Has a really smart, interesting-sounding debut YA novel coming out next year. It was really good. Um, and Kelly Robson has written some wrote a terrific science fiction short story uh, called Two Year Man for Asimov's. That was uh-huh. dystopic and really powerful, and also a really terrific light enjoyable novella for Tor.com called Waters of Versailles. Uh-huh. Uh, and both of them showed a great deal of depth and variety to what they're doing. I was really impressed. I think they're both going to be people we're going to be reading for a chunk of time yet. The second question, then, is um, somebody's first published story, I noticed has sometimes shown up in a year's best anthology, <clears throat> but not very common. I mean, do you... Do you simply take a story on a one-shot, or do you want the author to have at least enough traction to possibly be a continuing author? I, I think it's irrelevant. I oh. think it's got to be your reaction to what's on the page. Uh, in the last two years, we had two two very, very good writers who mm. had early stories, first stories, second stories, that were in year's bests and made awards lists. Kaya Shante Wilson and Usman T. Malik. Yes. And they've both shown that they have the potential to go on and be really major writers in the field, I think. Um, I don't think the fact they had no real track record before uh, The Devil in America came out, before the vaporization enthalpy of a Pakistani family came out, uh-huh. um, made any difference to the selection. In fact, if anything, Gary, it makes it more exciting. I would think so. Yeah, if you find, I mean, could you go back to 1990 and imagine reading Ted Chang uh, in ta- you know, with Towers of Babylon, Tower of Babylon in oh, Omni? Yeah. yeah, out of the blue, terrific story. Uh, Kaya Shante Wilson with The Devil in America came out last year. Who had ever heard of him much before, if at all? No. And true. the same for Usman, you know. So, no, I think it's it's, it's actually one of the great joys of the, of the of the job is finding someone who has no track record. And even if they never write another story that's, that, or novel or anything that makes an impact again, there's always that one story or two stories. So, yeah. Well, that's true. And uh, it made, it, what made me think of that was um, our friend Ellen Clages, who I did not know, what was it, 20 years ago or something, that Bending the Landscape came out, the um, uh, gay and lesbian. Uh, they, there were three volumes, I think. Yeah, science fiction, fantasy, and horror that Nicola Griffith and Stephen... Pagel. Pagel, yes, thank you. And I just... Coincidentally, I was reviewing Bending the Landscape Science Fiction for Locus, and the one story that simply absolutely stood out for me was um, Time Gypsy by Ellen Clages, which is still, and I've talked to her about this, still her best plotted story. Yeah. And frankly, it was the best story in the collection. Yeah. And I think since then, it's probably the only one that's been reprinted with any degree of regularity. But there was that sense of, this is somebody, and I didn't know who she was at all other than you know, a brief biographical note. But there was a sense that this is either somebody who's written one great story and that's fine, or it's the beginning of a really good career, and either way... Uh, want to bring it to people's attention. Well, well I, mean, I, I mean, think as well. I mean, take it up to a novel level. What about those writers who deliver one great book? Are you any less excited because it did, wasn't followed by another great book? Um, <clears throat> I think to some extent that's what causes some writers to disappear a little bit. 
which is an issue, by the way, which we're, we're, going, we're segueing into this. By the time we're halfway through the podcast, we're going to be at our topic, so people bear with us. Um, people sometimes fade away, even if, even if you have a classic story or novel. If you write a Flowers for Algernon, you're home free for the rest of your life. Almost no, nobody does that. If you're uh, Raphael Carter and you write one terrific short story and one pretty good novel, and then, as far as I can tell, pretty much disappear from the face of the earth. Um, those are still, it's still a terrific short story, and it's still a very good novel, but does anybody talk about Raphael Carter anymore? Being talked about is such a funny thing. I mean, we talked at great length in Saratoga Springs about things like the death of the midlist and the changes mm-hmm. to the magazine and short story publication, publishing environment, all of which I think contribute <laughs> to making uh, works struggle to have an ex- you know, extended lifeline. I mean, there's there's a digital landscape out there where everything is potentially in print, but you can't find anything. And when it comes to the physical landscape, everything disappears quickly, or most things disappear quickly. Uh-huh. So my guess is that Raphael Carter's book, The Fortunate Fall, I think it was? Fortunate Fall, I think. It's probably out of print at the moment. Wouldn't be surprised at all if it were. Uh, and any number of other books, Paul Preuss's Secret Passages, uh, uh Ari McAvoy's Tea with the Black Dragon, um, uh, part, you know, Barry Huart's Bridge of Birds. The odds that these books yeah. are out of print, Mythigo Wood. I mean, I'm sure the only reason Mythigo Wood by Rob Holstock is still in print is because of Masterworks kind of series from the wonderful people at Golans. So, right. you know, books disappear all the time. Uh, and that's The point that one of our guests was making in one of the podcasts, not to step on that, was that if you want to find, um, you can find those books, but you're not going to stumble across them in a bookstore. In other words, if you want to discover uh, Paul Preuss's novel, if you want to discover uh, any of Rob Holdstock's novels, you need to know where to look. If you know where to, what to ask for on the web, fine. But the idea, the experience of stumbling across a brand-new writer you've never heard of in a bookstore and thinking, this looks interesting, uh, I'll take a look at it, and you buy it and go home with it. Does oh, that happen online at all? I don't know if it happens online, but I was going to say in bookstores, the, the quibble I'd give you is this. I think a new new writer, you know, like a, a recent new writer to you, like let's say you uh-huh. were, went out into a bookstore today anywhere in the UK or the US or Australia, there's a pretty good chance you'll come across Zen Cho's Sorcerer to the Crown. New writer, good book, worth reading. Right. However, if what you're thinking is, will I stumble across an older book for the first time that's new to me, I think it's very hard. Well, that's uh, the point, yes. I know, and, 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 and I absolutely agree. I think it is hard. I don't think there's a solution. There are a few sort of little sort of eddies in the torrent out there where books still you know, accumulate. During my, my Jeremiah home from uh, Saratoga Springs, I stopped in Oakland, mm-hmm. and I drove over to uh, Berkeley and went into the shambolic, I have to say, the somewhat shambolic uh, palace that is Dark Carnival Books. And every old book is in Dark Carnival Bookstore. You know, if you if you live in Ber- if you live in the Bay Area, you have Dark Carnival and Borderlands. Borderlands, which is fresh and crisp and great, and has a cafe. And where, mm-hmm. uh, like, I went in there. I was in there during a break and met Tempest Bradford there by chance, Jeremy Lesson there by chance, Alan Beats, who, who who owns the place by chance. Terrific place, great books, lots of depth of stock. Uh, Dark Carnival, much more, let's say, organic. But it has it's everything. Been the in it. same the last time I was there. I gather there, 
front windows haven't changed much in years. But, you know, those places have stuff. And so if you want to stumble across things... Actually, here's the thing. You don't stumble across stuff in a place like Dark Carnival. You mine for it. Uh, I, I, look, I don't know. I think maybe maybe it comes back to these days. Word of the mouth is what's going to get you through. Which every book person will tell you. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, that you need... <clears throat> You need networking more than ever before, I think. Uh, when I stumbled across writers when I was a kid, it was whatever looked interesting in a bookstore or in a drugstore or in a used bookstore, and you sort of sifted your way through things um, that way. Now you need recommendations. There's, uh, I was reading recently, I think somebody has reprinted uh, two of these William Sloan novels from the 1930s, The Edge of Running Water and the other one whose title I'm blanking on at the moment. Very interesting science fiction-like mystery occult. Well, they weren't doing the occult. They were really science fiction novels. Sloan wrote those two novels and was never heard from again in the science fiction field. They've been kind of cult novels ever since. Um, and I don't know how anybody would discover that unless somebody posts something about it um, on, I don't know, on io9 or tor.com. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people are doing this. I mean, Charlie Jane Anders has been doing discover, rediscovering Lee Brackett, for example, and other... Joe Walton did a her- heroic effort with the um, the stuff that went on to, on to become her book that won the Hugo. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, or was so nominated I, so for Hugo, think, not one, but yeah. But, but I think one of the questions I'm getting at, uh, which was uh, one of the questions we started out uh, <clears throat> talking among ourselves about, was we've done a series of podcasts dealing with women in science fiction, and what did we come away from that with? And in some ways, somebody um, emailed me or made a Facebook post after we did a discussion with Charlie Jane Andrews and Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough that it was an, they thought it was an odd pairing because you've got two people who really did not know each other well or did not know each other's work very well. One, a younger writer uh, with uh, a first novel, uh, first genre novel, and the other one, a veteran of science fiction and, and fantasy and most famously of horror. And yet there were odd parallels, this person said, between their careers, one starting after the year 2000, the other one starting yep. before the year 1970, Yeah. which makes me wonder if women have made that much progress. On the other hand, there is the question of... Um, I guess age. If, if you're a writer who uh, produced some classic novels 30 and 40 years ago, and uh, I think I think Quinn Yarbrough is a good example of that. I think False Dawn is a novel if people were to dig it out today would find it's very prescient in terms of the way it presents a brutal dystopia. Mm-hmm. And yet everybody knows that Quinn Yarbrough is a vampire writer because she's been writing these wonderful San Germain novels for 30 years now. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, uh, none of the women we talked to really said that they had any overt sexism uh, that they were aware of in terms of editorial policy, in terms of people reading their manuscripts, in terms of people accepting their manuscripts. Although we did hear from a couple of people, and I've heard this since from a couple of people I talked to at WendyCon, that once you enter the social circles of science fiction, once you start going to conventions, once you start going to meetings, that's when you start experiencing discrimination. And that made sense to me because I think I've watched it happen. I, okay, that makes sense to you, but I'd also quibble slightly on the first part of your observation that there was no oh. overt sexism. You're right, they absolutely did almost uniformly say that to us. However, the problem probably was never 
really a lot of overt sexism. It was the unconscious sexism as well. You know, probably the, well, because it's it's it's, like, it, it's it's this thing. Who gets invited to be part of projects? Who gets involved in conversations? Who mm. who is in that sphere so they can actually gain those advantages and end up published in this anthology, that magazine, this science fiction line? That was the problem. It wasn't anybody sitting there going, I'm not going to publish women. I'm sure the vast majority, if not all of the editors in the history of the field have said, I just want a good story. Uh, and some uh-huh. would say, I'm, I'm completely open to women. I publish something by name a woman that you've heard of. However, they weren't sitting there really working it through. And one of the things is that the kind of challenges that face, I believe, men and women being involved in science fiction are different. There are different social and cultural demands on us all. And I think that the field is probably better set up to compensate for the kind of challenges for, t- t- for t- time and everything else that face men than they have to mm-hmm. face women. And, you know, and, and so women are disadvantaged by the broader culture's behavior, of which science fiction is a subset. And so it's been working to overcome that that's an issue. And I think we're by no means all the way there. I mean, that was one of the observations talking to Pam Sargent and again to a few other people. Uh-huh. You know, we're not there, but we're talking about it. We're closer. There's more of an expectation that we're trying to get there. So I think, you know, it's like it's better than it was for that reason. I don't know if anybody's done this kind of study, but I'm sure somebody might be working on it at this very minute. And if not, they can get started. If you look at um, uh, the proportion of anthologizations. The point I'm getting at is this. The point is that one stereotype can enforce another stereotype. And I'm thinking of the anthologists, the great, the great anthologists, of starting with the late '40s and through the through now, uh, that if they begin selecting stories for a reprint anthology, on the assumption which the marketing people and everybody else has probably told them that the readership is teenage boys, are they going to consciously or unconsciously avoid having too many ri- women writers? So to some extent, the idea that women um, don't write science fiction, is that the idea or is the idea that that the teenage male audience of science fiction won't buy an anthology with too many women in it? I think it, there may be a bit of truth to the latter being the prejudice that it's easier to sell something by a man or by a non-female-sounding name. Whether it's true, you know. Now, you do sort of touch on, quite solidly, actually, something would be interesting. I'd be fascinated to see someone do a demographic study, not of stories by gender in anthologies over time, but reprinted stories by gender over time. Well, that, that's similar to what I'm talking mm, about. That's I'm, I'm sure that if we, yeah, it, it would it would take a lot of number crunching at the Internet Science Fiction database to do this, but you could certainly, well, you could certainly guess on the number of the most reprinted stories in science fiction: the Nine Billion Names of God, the Cold Equations, Flowers for Algernon, uh, Fondly Fahrenheit. Uh, but we, when the, and I'm just taking stuff off the top of my head. Yeah. When I get when I start reciting things like that, I get to Vintage Season, which is Catherine Moore, even though Kuttner got partial writing credit for it. Um, and I think the part of the issue is simply that, yeah, those stories that were obviously 
by women were less likely to get reprinted than those that were obviously by men. And one of the other odd things, which we've talked about occasionally when we look at issues of other uh, segments of the science fiction community, yeah. by which I mean uh, uh, gays, Caribbean um, uh, people, people from Africa, international people, non-English language people, uh, other than an obviously foreign name on a story, the only category yeah. that you can pretty much overtly discriminate against is woman. I mean, back in the 30s yeah. and 40s, and I, Justine said this in her book about the Battle of Sexes, uh, back in the 30s and 40s, you might very well have had uh, black or gay or Jewish writers or God knows what kind of writers, asexual writers. You wouldn't know. Um, yeah. But if somebody you know, submits a story under the name of Anne McCaffrey, uh, unless she decides to disguise it the way Andre Norton did, you have a basis for discrimination, which is one of the reasons that you could argue that, as a category, women have suffered more discrimination simply because more people know they're women. Maybe so. I mean, it's interesting. As I'm sitting here listening to you talk and enjoying what you're having to say, uh, I've picked a ra literally a random selection of reprint anthologies off my shelf, right? Okay, cool. Now, I can tell you that in the case of... Um, Wow, okay. Uh, in, in the case of these four books, the only one that has more than three out of 15 women in it, and in some cases it's one or two, is the one that's edited by a woman. Uh-huh. And usually it's like one or two. Old, these anthologies, though? This is... These are 1980s, 1990s anthologies. Okay. That would make sense. And, okay, gotcha. You know? So, and I'm, I suspect that's true of any reprint anthology I could pull, pull off the shelf right now. You know, and that, that's a problem, you know, because, because that's part of how you get to be forgotten and how you don't have a, a career. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, you're basically, you're, uh, if your name disappears for enough years, male or female, you're going to be, have a hard time, uh, you know, re-entering the field at any level. Um, but uh, the other interesting thing, and, I, and like I say, this is statistical argumentation and there are a lot of problems with bibliometrics, with statistical approaches to literary study of any sort. I wonder if women who had uh, ambiguous names, the Lee Brackets, the C.L. Moores, had a better chance of being reprinted than, uh, than women who had obvious names like Zena Henderson. Maybe so. And I don't know so. the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. I do remember listening to a long interview with Lee Brackett, um, whose centennial this is, we will remind people once again, that she, the, the, the science fiction community in Los Angeles in the late 30s and early 40s was so narrow that everybody knew she was a woman. Yeah. Uh, and she only ran up against uh, the assumption that Lee was a man's name when she got involved with Hollywood and with Howard Hawks. Yeah. Um, so, so she didn't feel like she was being discriminated against, but she didn't really know that she probably had gotten some of her science fiction stories and some of her mystery novels published because of the assumption that Lee was a man's name. Yeah, well, you, you, you could never know, could you, unless someone overtly told you, and they, were, they would never tell you that. No. Although, in, in this particular case, it's a funny story. She showed up at Howard Hawks's office to be offered the job of writing the screenplay for The Big Sleep, along with William Faulkner. Uh, and he was stunned because... His assistant, of course, had set up the appointment. She walked in and he said, I think I wanted to talk to your husband or something. And she said, no, this is me. And 
he dealt with it, but her point was that Hollywood was far more vicious to women writers than the science fiction community was in that era. Whilst I'm sure that's true. Tr- <laughs> oh, look, I believe it. I believe it. Um, it doesn't sort of change the fact that, you know, we need to address it as best we can. And it's a difficult environment to address it in because of the, the infrastructural changes to publishing itself. So <sighs> It is. Since this is the last freeform podcast we're going to record in 2015, Gary, we should probably try to put a little bit of a positive spin on our remaining 10 or 15 minutes. So okay. it doesn't doesn't sound as though sort of things are terrible because I mean I think that the situation for women is improving in science fiction. For for most people, it, it, it's improving. Though there are areas where it's perhaps no, you know, how would I put it? There's there's it's it's not just women who who need you know sort of to have prejudice addressed on their behalf or to get you know, to, to address prejudice. That was terrible. But well, I want to tell you that I come out of the 2015 reading year exhausted but optimistic. You know, I think we saw some great science fiction and fantasy published in 2015 and 16. I think we see writers who are moving in new and interesting and unexpected directions. We'll certainly be talking about this on the uh, Best of the Year podcast, but mm-hmm. there are a number of writers, and you know, we've been thinking about women writers, so the names are coming to mind, that really like to play with different genres in a, yep. in a very loose and creative way, and that, that whose careers take unexpected directions. For example, uh, when we uh, had Aliette Bodardan talking about her yep. you know, wonderful fantasy novel, uh, yeah. The uh, House of Shattered Wings, did you really think that was going to be what her first novel was going to be? Because she had this wonderful far future hard SF thing based on you know Chinese Aztec civilizations and everybody, at least I thought that's what, sort of what her novel was going to be. Her novel turned out to be this mystical Don't forget that it is their that's her, Don't forget that House of Shattered Wings is her fourth novel, right? Right, but it seems she was moving in the direction of the and she did the Aztec stuff in those three novels for Angry Robot. Oh, okay. I so I missed that. So you know she's it's really my, my of, point is still that she's taken a left turn out of what would she has without a doubt would have been a career path. Yes, the, the the idea was at one point if you were a writer, male or female, and if you could establish a franchise, you'd stick with it. You know, and everybody violated. That. I mean, basically, I'm sure that well, this was fairly evident. Not long after Lois McMaster Bujold discovered how popular Miles Rokosigan was, yeah. she could go on writing more and more of those as she did. But she also chose to write fantasy novels that had nothing to do with Miles Rokosigan. She didn't. And Apparently, think, they're very, very good. And they are very good. Edward James in his books about her has a book about her has has nothing but high praise for them. Uh, my point is that's what fascinates me is when a writer sort of jumps ship, changes direction, does something that you didn't expect that writer to do. And, and there and was some of that. No, Cat Valenti does this all the time. Yes, it's true. I do not know what to expect from Cat Valenti, and it's always going to be interesting because of that. Yeah, and I have to say, I love some of her stuff, and some of it I find at at right angles to my taste. But you will have to admit, it's never monotonous. Oh no, no, she's an interesting writer, and we've got a, a group of very interesting writers out there. Uh, doing good work. Uh, probably one of the things that I liked about 2015 is there were several works published, major work public, published, that challenged some of the fundamental assumptions of science fiction. And I think that's always a useful thing to do. You know, so I think, I mean, Stan Robinson's Aurora, which we'll probably talk about next week. Carter Schultz's long novella Gypsy, both. Uh, 
it comes out, I just received a copy, Gary, of Gypsy Plus, his short story collection from PM Press. This has been applied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's where this novella Gypsy, which is also an FNSF, was first appeared, along with a couple of other original stories and a few other things, and it's very very good stuff, very very good stuff, and I strongly recommend mm-hmm. it. But it's interesting to see him really having, not having a go, but certainly challenging what we think science fiction's about and what it's for and all that. So I've enjoyed that this year very much. I think it's. Um... That, that, that's there's all there have always been a certain group of writers who are writing what some academics call self-reflexive science fiction, science fiction that comments on science fiction traditions, such as Aurora commenting on the mm. Generation Starship. I don't know what the Carter Schultz thing is, but there, you know, there have been a number of sort of re retakes on cyberpunk uh, that sort of reimagine it as being something other than what Gibson had, and I think. Um, and there are writers who have made their careers out of doing that, although by and large, um, it doesn't always connect with the audience, which raises one of the issues we come up with again and again on the podcast. Very good writers, um, I mean extremely good writers, who don't have a single work that you could necessarily name as canonical, and who maybe, um, um, I don't know, I, 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 I certainly don't want to say too intellectual for the readership of the genre, but... Maybe, um, maybe they're, they're they're trying to reach a niche that has not yet been defined. Maybe. I'm thinking of writers. Since, since you mentioned PM, one of the writers I'm thinking of is Terry Bisson, mm-hmm. um, who is, is just a terrific writer who's written lots of terrific stuff. All of which is fairly involves fairly sharp commentaries on the expectations of science fiction readers. Yeah. Uh, Norman Spinrad was, has been doing this for 50 years now, challenging your expectations. Uh, and you're right. Uh, we, we have a, a number of younger writers who are doing that, who are taking on everything from space opera to to, to cyberpunk to uh, uh, cloning fiction and challenging our assumptions about that. My question is, is that a good career move? Do people want their assumptions challenged or do they want their assumptions reinforced? Some do. We do. I don't know. Challenged. Look, I, mean, I don't mind seeing a good performance of a classic space opera, but... Let me ask you this question, then I'm going to wind it up. Even though we're a little early, I think we've sort of rambled around enough, and we'll throw this at the end, and it'll segue off to the year in a few few weeks, though I think we'll probably talk to Jim Minns before we do that. We'll see. But um, was there one book that you were particularly excited about in 2015? Oh. There are... I I have not looked at all the forthcoming books for uh, 2015, certainly... A couple that uh, I have on my pile right now are the second novel from Sophia Samatar. No, 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 no. And no, no, that's not what I asked you. Not what, not what you're looking for oh. next year. What, looking back at 2015, was the one book you were excited about the most? I'm tempted to say Aurora. I think. And partly Aurora, that's yeah. because I'm a hard science fiction reader. It's the kind of commentary that needs to be made. I know there's a lot of. There's an article I think in. The New York Review of Science Fiction challenging some of the scientific assumptions behind it, but that's great because that that means you've got a, a literary hard science fiction novel which is generating the kind of engineering discussions that uh, 
that people like uh, Larry Niven used to generate. So it's it, it's a, in some ways it's an old-fashioned science fiction novel. In some places, in some in some aspects, it completely subverts the idea of the old-fashioned science fiction novel. And when you say the first top of the head, that was literally top of the head. There's no Probably doubt. Yeah. Probably because you'd mentioned it earlier. Yeah, I was going to say, well, there's no doubt that the book I've spoken about the most this year is uh, Aurora. You know, when I think about it, since we, I read it, since we talked to Stan and on through the year, that's the book uh-huh. I've spoke, talked about the most. So I probably I would flag that. I feel like I want to then have my cake and eat it too and say, well, there's this one, there's that one. I mean, Dave Hutcherson's Europe at Midnight is a truly terrific book. Which I would love to read, yeah. Well, you should. There's bookstores and everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things that I feel uh, terribly guilty about. And, you know, our friend James Bradley, a friend of this podcast, uh, uh, reviewed it for Locus and said very, very smart and positive things about it. Uh, but there was also, like, I loved uh, Zen Cho and Elliot de Bodard's novels this year. I don't know that it was quite as focused as I was on Aurora, but it really stood out for me. So, but, but well, I mean, we're both of a mindset that when you say name a novel, I think we both tend to gravitate toward science fiction first. Mm-hmm. Because I consider myself a science fiction reader more than a fantasy reader. Uh, and... Uh, the Elliot de Bodard novel, which, by the way, we should mention this, is is a haunting novel, which has become even more haunting since we've seen what's happened in Paris. Uh, True. There have been a handful of science fiction stories that deal with the kind of post-apocalyptic Paris uh, that, that, that she talks about in this. Actually, another one is uh, an interesting one by Caitlin Kernan, um, which I think is in her new collection. But that sense of um, I guess sense of wonder yeah. uh, that you can attain in a fantasy novel in a realistic setting. My argument about the uh, my argument in favor of um, the House of Shattered Wings is that that really is what we ought to be calling urban yeah. fantasy. Possibly so. Uh, we, we, we're all novel. Mm-hmm. Zen Cho's novel was just an unexpected delight. Again, she had a good sense of humor from her collection of short stories, but I don't think anybody expected to see this kind of. Uh, you know Jane Austen, Susanna Clark, uh, uh, P.G. Woodhouse mashup, which was also a kind of colonial and yeah. racial and ethnic critique of of, uh, of England during yeah. the period of the Regency. The, the one of the books that we're not mentioning is neither of us. Well, I haven't read it yet, but I, though I will, is the final ancillary book from Anne, Anne Leckie, Ancillary Mercy. Uh, and I mean, I've, I increasingly I'm thinking of Leckie now as being the of us being C.J. Cherry for the 21st century is being the most... I mean, I think she's heavily influenced by Cherry. I think so. And I mean, you can see it in some, a, novel, a novel that she did for um, Microsoft just recently. So I do want to read that before I make any assumptions because I, from, what, from all everything I hear about it, it's supposed to be ter- actually really terrific. You know, there's different takes on the second book. The third book's supposed to be really great as well. And I gather Kelly Link's new story is straight science fiction. Yes, the game of recovery and something else. Yes, it is. It's straight as yeah, It's yeah, very. It's, it's, uh, it's a good novelette. Expect to see it in various years. Best, I would good. think. Yeah, this is this is good to hear because we were uh, talking about things like this. One one of the panels I was on at WendyCon was ironically a Women of Wonder panel. If you were going to do a Women of Wonder today, uh, what would you do? Because you're not really. Uh, when you look at all of the Women of Wonder anthologies that were originally done by Pam Sargent and uh, over a period of 20 years, you're not really rediscovering uh, 
earlier writers. I went back and looked at the earlier Women of Wonder. It's a very literary collection. Now the point that that Pam made is that you have to have a 1,200, 1,500-page book to to try to cover the number of women writers in, in science fiction. But what was interesting to me is when we were starting to come up with names, and I was thinking, okay, Women of Wonder is an anthology of short stories, so you have to think of people who have written short stories in the genre, such as Elliot de Baudard, for example, mm-hmm. or Linda Ligman. And it seems to me that... It seemed uh, the other people on the panel were naming novelists, and I thought, okay, that's fine, but it's not the point here. Um, it seems to me that there may be um, more writers, not just women, but more writers who are choosing short stories as simply a fill-in, uh, something to, to do between novels, something that's not I don't a know. major assignment. Tell, I'll tell you what I do feel confident about. I'm looking, as we speak, at the table of contents for the fourth and, to date, final Women of Wonder book, Women of Wonder, the Contemporary uh-huh. Years, which came out in 1995. Now, that's 20 years ago. Right. I the believe... Was 40 years ago. I believe you could put out a terrific anthology of uh, science fiction by women, and it is science fiction. There's no mucking about here. It has to be science fiction. Yeah, right. Who all started their careers after the last after story... Well, after the last story that appeared in this book. Yeah. Yeah, that's, no, that's a very good point. And I mean, even I mean, off the top of the alley, the Bodards and you know, Gwyneth Joneses and all sorts of people. I mean, uh, Anne Leckie's, uh, Cameron Hurley's, uh, Madeline Ashby's. I could, you know, you could go around and around and around without a great deal of trouble coming up with more and more names. Um, you know, uh, N.K. Jemison, whoever else. So. Right. That's pretty darn. Ex- that, that, that's a good thing. And in fact, I think somebody should do that book. I would be curious. I'd love to see, love to see somebody do it. Why don't you do it? Ah, uh, because I think it really should be. It shouldn't be a white, an old white guy doing it, Gary. A fifty-year-old white guy. It should be. Uh, I mean, when Pam Sargent did it, she was a young, engaged woman. I think it should be an Elisa Krasnstein. I think it should be a Charlie Anders. I think it should be. Yeah. Okay. You know, those sort of people should should do it. Let then bring that freshness of perspective because that will then show something different to people like you and you or I. I. I would love to see that. I'd love to, because one of the things I looked at the original 1974 Women of Wonder, and it was surprisingly literary in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the people like Pamela Zoline and uh, I forgot who else was in it, but it was, it was not, these are women who write for the, you know, pulp teacher. They, mm. they were there, obviously. It was a simultaneous argument, which I wish I'd looked at it before we actually talked to Pam. It's a simultaneous argument toward a more literary science fiction and toward a kind of, um, obviously, some feminist science fiction, but mostly science fiction by women. And my question is, if you were going to do an anthology like that today, would you look at writers like, for example, Karen Russell, who doesn't write in the genre, but who certainly at least touches upon it in her short story. I think I would, but I, I guess one of the things I feel is really necessary right now is to talk about the all of the people, whether they be men, women, people of color, who are actually actively engaged in the genre rather than those who are skirting around it. I mean, there's an enormous attraction to the Judith Merrill approach where you bring in literary mainstream people who use fantasy techniques or science fiction techniques or create science fiction or fantasy stories to give some kind of legitimacy and broadness to science fiction and fantasy. On the other hand, with a showcase like 
with the Women of Wonder books, I think there's a lot to be said for going for the heart of our genre and, and showing that to the world at large. Well, I mean, the argument that you're making about C.J. Cherry is an argument that could be made about these anthologies. Mm. Because C.J. Cherry, uh, of, of most of the, I mean, I don't remember, she probably was not in the original. She, she was. In the original. She was in the second she one. The, first, the, the 1974 oh, one? Oh, no, she was in the 1995 one, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she couldn't have been in the 1974 one. But the idea that people like C.J. Cherry are writing in the mainstream of hard SF, that's, that's making an argument about science fiction and an argument about women in science fiction at the same time. Um, that is, to some extent, that in order to include fantastic stories by women, uh, you don't need to sort of kind of pretend that maybe Shirley Jackson is kind of maybe almost sort of sometimes a science fiction writer, yeah. which she almost always wasn't. But um, the fact... You know, the fact that you've got Cherry writing a kind of science fiction which is at the heart of what uh, analog uh, was at one point and, uh, and still is to some extent. The fact that you've got women defining the terms of the mm-hmm. genre, the way Karen, the, the way uh, Lois McMaster Bujol does, uh, those things need to be recognized too. And the problem, I think, with any contemporary anthology, speaking to a professional anthologist, mm-hmm. is that you have so many people whose major imaginative effort goes into novels these days and who are told by mm. their agents, by their editors, by their publishers, if you want to write a short story, publish a short story that will somehow support the mythology of your novel. Yeah, there's some truth to that. Anyway, we're done, Gary. We're done. We're over an hour. Okay, okay. Let's wind up. Let's leave this. Let's say this, this time really we blathered, not rambled. But we've got to the end of a podcast. It'll go out. If you ha- if you got all the way to the end, you, listeners, well, well, you, you well, deserve a special thanks. Right, uh, that's true. But the good news for the for our listeners is that the next four or five podcasts you hear after this one are going to be way better than this one was. <laughs> in fact, probably more than that. I mean, in theory, we'll be talking to Mr. Jim Mins about his career at Bain and moving from uh, Delray in, in New York out to the uh, to the Midwest. We'll then be talking to Adam Roberts, Paul Kincaid, and Charlie Jane Anders about the best science fiction and fantasy of the year. And then we'll go into the blessed hiatus wherein we shall not record at all for a month, and we will let you hear, hear Glenn Cook and Steve Erickson, the panel we did about the fantasy canon, uh, the discussion with Gene Wolfe about uh, his book, A, a Burrowed Man, uh, and the, you know, the other couple we did, the, the Scott Lynch, Elizabeth Bear, or whatever else. And that'll take us into January sometime. But, and you won't have to listen to us again till then. Until then, this has been but, a good street podcast. No, 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 no. No, 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 we're not. I'm going to finish on this little note, Gary. For all, this is not our best podcast. This has been our best year. I would agree with that. I think it's I been a really on. good year. I think we've done some good stuff. I hope that our listeners have enjoyed it. I've enjoyed doing it. And we will finish up with these next few and then take our break and then come back in 2016 to do it again. Do I get to do the ending now? Yeah, all right. And this has been the Coon Street Podcast. For which we apologize. Oh, come on.